Welcome to the Valley Advocate Podcast, featuring interviews that take us deeper into the people and happenings on the local scene. For more podcasts and a closer look at what's going on in the Valley, visit us at valleyadvocate.com. Hello and welcome to the Valley Advocate Podcast. My name is Dave Eisenstatter. I'm the editor of the Valley Advocate. I'm here with staff writer Luis Fieldman, who has just come out with part one of a three-part series about seeking asylum in Western Massachusetts. This is a story about asylum seekers coming to the U.S. and who have ultimately settled in Western Massachusetts. Hey, Luis. Hi, Dave. Uh, This is a really exciting series that um, we're putting together. I'm super thrilled to be working on it with you. Um, This was your idea. Maybe you could talk a little bit about, um, first of all, what seeking asylum is and how it differs from other forms of immigration and how you know, this series came together for you. Definitely. You know, uh, seeking asylum and uh, the asylum status in the United States is a protected status, and it's really similar to refugees. Uh, The key difference being that you ask for asylum once you're actually in the country or you're at a port of entry in the country, such as the southern border, or maybe even if you're coming in through boat or by plane, there are several ways to ask for asylum. Um, but like refugee um, status, it's for people who are not safe at home. You know, they're either persecuted by their governments or um, unfortunately, a lot of cases there are criminal elements um, that are targeting these folks. Um, and it also can uh, cover people who are in danger in domestic violence situations. So um, it covers a lot of different reasons, but essentially it's for people who are just not safe in their home country. And the United States uh, has historically been a place for people to come and seek those protected statuses for both refugee and asylum status. Um, and in terms of me getting involved with this story, um, it kind of goes back to November um, when I first actually became aware of the Western Mass um, Asylum Seekers uh, Support Network. Um, I had gone to this event. It was a fundraiser at the Northampton Center for the Arts and uh, essentially we're fundraising um, for asylum seekers and there was a woman from Central America who talked about her journey through Mexico and how difficult that was and then another man from Iran who had similarly to uh, Ramon in the story he had gone through Central America and through Mexico um, and just hearing their stories um, you know I knew that that was something I wanted to follow up on and so Basically, from November up until January, I was in communication with some folks with this network, and it was really through them that I was able to learn a lot about the asylum-seeking process, all the changes that have happened in the last four years under this new administration, and and also just like being connected with other asylum seekers and hearing their stories. Yeah, the changes that have made things more difficult. We'll get into that more uh, more later on. So this is part one of the series. The subtitle here is Fleeing Danger and Violence to Arrive in the Valley. I think a lot of people might not know that there are asylum seekers in this part of the country, um, but they are all over the place. And um, and this part one of this series focuses on two asylum seekers. We're not using their real names, and we're not revealing their true countries of origin to protect um, to protect them. Uh, they're not only their legal cases sensitive, but they are still, and their families are, still facing danger in their home countries. Uh, But we're calling them Ramon and Santiago. Ramon is from West Africa, Santiago from Central America. And, uh, you know, they 
they faced a lot of danger and trouble. Maybe you could talk a little bit what, about what you learned, starting with Ramon, um, about how uh, he had to flee his, his country. Yeah, so Ramon at the time was going to university in his home country, and he was studying to be a civil engineer. And because of this civil war that's breaking out in his country, um, schools got shut down, and he had to go home. And he was living at home for a little bit, and he had another job. And essentially, one day, uh, he comes back home, and due to the nature of the conflict in his country, um, the military is sort of arbitrarily targeting folks that they believe that are part of this separatist faction. And he came home to discover his home burned down to the ground and that his brother had been killed. And his mother said, uh, you got to go. You have to you have to run. You have to get out of the country. You have to seek some safety because he was still very much targeted and in danger. So um, he fled and had to go through several other African countries before he was able to actually get on a plane to head to Central America. And, and you know, this is someone who doesn't speak any Spanish. And something remarkable to me is that he was able, you know, basically in four months or so um, to go from Ecuador all the way up to uh, the Tijuana-U.S.-Mexico border. At times using Google Translate on his phone, right? On to, his phone. To, to communicate with some people. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's also worth noting, too, that he was traveling with uh, with people from India, people from Bangladesh, uh, from China, and, and Haitians as well. So these are people from sort of all over the world that he's traveling with through Central America and um, and through Mexico. And, you know, granted, he didn't stay with those people the whole time, and it wasn't like this total coordinated effort. He was a lot of times by himself traveling, but just it goes to show just all the different types of people that are making the same type of journey that he is. Um, and real dangers. They were going through the jungle. You mentioned that he noticed some dead bodies along the way. Um, that there, you know, it was a really dangerous trip. And he was talking about people getting uh, robbed um, and you know, much worse happening to people than he. And he felt kind of lucky to get as far Absolutely. as he did. Yeah, he felt like one of the lucky ones. You know, a lot of people get robbed along the way. Um, not just from, you know, criminals, um, but actually sometimes from police and, and from governments. Governments accept bribes uh, in order to gain access to the country in these Central American co- countries. Uh, corruption is unfortunately pretty rampant down there, so it's, it's a perilous journey. Now, Santiago was starting in Central America. Um, tell a little bit about his story. He is someone who actually worked for the government, um, and... <clears throat> it was um, it was it was difficult for him because uh, he spoke a lot about sort of his his uh, moral values and what he saw when he became um, a government employee um, is that there was a lot of corruption um, there was a lot of what he considered illegal activities and the there was government officials that time after time were trying to get him to basically falsify records uh, in the department that he was in in terms in into to further their illegal activities and he refused to take part of that and he would be transferred to different departments within the government and he just in sort of everywhere he went he would see different levels of corruption he would see money that was supposed to go from impoverished people be redirected to very rich people and he saw all all the sort of favors that are done for well-connected people in these in this case it was an authoritarian government and so he had first-hand look at all that and he would speak up a lot of times against that and 
and eventually he lost his job. He became targeted. He said that police would basically patrol his house. And and this is sort of at the same time as there's a lot of political unrest. Uh, the government is seizing indigenous lands. Um, there are a lot of other things going on in terms of pensions being um being like the age being increased in order for pensions to be received and, and a lot of other things. So there's a lot of unrest. He eventually became part of these protests against the seizure of indigenous lands and uh, and things got violent. Uh, a lot of people started losing their lives as, as the government used their military on their own people. Um, and uh, eventually he was basically sort of you know, not leaving his house because he was, uh, because the military and police were patrolling him. And, and it was a professor of his, an old professor at a university that told him, Santiago, uh, you're on this list. The government is not going to allow you to leave. And, you know, and for him, and I think for a lot of people, when you make it onto that kind of list, um, not only do they want to capture you, it essentially means that you, you're a target and, yeah, he was worried that it wasn't just a do not leave list. He was worried that it's it was it could be a, a death list. Yeah, and essentially the way they view it there, considering how violent the military has been, is if you're on a do not leave list, it means they want you taken out. They don't want you alive anymore. They don't want you outspoken anymore. You know. So he did leave, made his way up to. Uh, I think both of these men made it to Tijuana, Mexico. And that brought them into contact with the asylum-seeking process. And they, they, spoke, they both spoke to uh, volunteers with the network that you spoke about um, to, to bring them to Western Massachusetts. But they faced quite a bit of, uh, you know, not, not necessarily the, the dangers of, of the Panama jungle, but, um, but certainly uh, a lot of obstacles... Um, in getting just through the bureaucratic system of becoming asylum seekers. Um, talk about the process of uh, applying for and becoming an asylum seeker. It's not like something where you just sign up and, uh, and, they, and you know, they, you've got to go through a, a whole process. Yeah, it's, it's a difficult process. Um, it's always um, been a difficult process. But I guess I think it's worth pointing out that the amount of asylum seekers and the people who are coming to claim asylum has is, is really gone up. Uh, if you compare 2019, there were 67,000 immigrants coming up asking for asylum status versus 2014, where there was 19,700. Um, so that's a significant jump in people who are coming asking for this protected status. Um, but, you know, just to talk on a few things that have changed... Um, at least at the southern border, uh, there's this metering system that's been implemented since April 2018, where if you're coming to this country and you're asking for asylum, you're put on a list and they say, you know, keep checking this list every day and eventually you'll be able to come back, come into the country um, and actually start beginning this process. So it's sort of most this preliminary step and so for Santiago and Ramon, they had to wait four or five weeks once they were actually part of the metering system. And then once you actually get into the system, uh, you're immediately detained. And, and then in that deten- once you're detained, that's when you fill out the actual form in order to ask for asylum status. Um, and then eventually, it doesn't happen immediately, a lot of times it happens within a month, is this uh, credible fear process where um, it's Border Patrol 
determining whether or not you have a solid enough argument if you were going to go before an immigration judge. So a lot of times uh, migrants are, are placed in what is is called often this icebox, uh, which is a lot of migrants in this large room, sometimes 30 to 60 folks, and they essentially have nothing available to them except for maybe like a toilet. And, and it's cold in there. I mean, that's why they call it the icebox. And they have these small, thin blankets, I think uh, one, one of the two, Ramon was saying. Yeah. Thin blankets. Paper thin. Paper thin blankets. And it's, it's shocking that um, there have been a lot of reports of people saying that um, they, they don't have any hygienic products. They're not allowed to shower for months on end. And, you know, people talk about the stench uh, in, the, in these facilities and how just awful these conditions are. And that is sort of the setting of how these asylum seekers have to start their credible fear process. They, um, it's sort of very discretionary for Border Patrol. It's up to them to say whether or not you can continue this process and actually go into the courts and start the immigration court process. Um, and so we, in this story, you sort of see two different asylum seekers in two different stages where Ramon ended up going through four different detention facilities. And it was when he ended up in Georgia that he was actually, after passing the credible fear, that he was actually in the immigration court process. Uh, Santiago, on the other hand, uh, he went through the credible fear. And once that was passed, um, he actually had a sponsor, um, that was, that was already willing to house him. Um, in a different part of the country, and this sponsor was actually not affiliated with their Mass, Western Mass Asylum Support Network, um, but he was able to actually get out of detention, and he's working through the immigration court process outside of detention, whereas Ramon actually completed the whole thing while in detention in Georgia, and that was it's a pretty unique experience because apparently it's, it's very difficult. He was unrepresented. He didn't have a lawyer with him. Uh, and that's he, Ramon. And that was Ramon, and eventually he was granted asylum. Um, and I guess this is a good time to sort of say the support that he actually got from the Western Mass Asylum Support Network. Um, he had met a volunteer named Jonathan Jenner, uh, who's from the Valley, and it was at a very key step in the process uh, that Jenner was actually able to help Ramon in that when the judge was asking for documents and evidence as to, you know, the dangers that he faced at home and to sort of provide proof about his home being burned down and his brother being killed, it was Jenner and through um, the network that they were able to get affidavits from his mother, from his aunt, and newspaper clippings and a death certificate to all back up Ramon's story. It's pretty incredible that 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 amount of you know, the country is going through civil war and all those documents are still required um, as rock solid proof. And it is good that I mean that with all that evidence, I guess the system worked in Ramon's case and, and he was granted uh, uh, asylum. Um, I think one of the interesting things about that that I learned about these detention facilities that is that there's a whole network. You know, there are detention facilities, as you mentioned, in Georgia. There's one that was mentioned in Washington State. Um, there are several uh, along the southern border. So it's, but it's not just the southern border. These detention facilities are everywhere. And Santiago, in particular, brought up some of the um, some of the discrimination that um, that can be faced by those in in detention. <clears throat> 
Yeah, he brought up um, this one instance of, you know, we have some of the photos here of folks basically use like uh, either candy wrappers or cookie wrappers and they make little figurines, a, a boot or a horse um, saddle and, and he even made a wallet out of a cookie um, cookie wrappers. And so because he's in these facilities, the lights are on 24-7, a lot of them suffer from insomnia and a lot of them have difficulty sleep, sleeping. And he talked about this older man who was just one night making these figures and he said, you know, this this immigration agent just, you know, said, stop doing that. He didn't want him to do it. And just for whatever reason decided he kind of picked a bone with him and took him out of um, you know, the holding facility they were in, put him in isolation. And when they, when he finally returned from, uh, being in isolation, they asked him, you know, do you know, did he explain why that happened? And he just said, you know, he didn't, I didn't respect his authority apparently. Um, and he, he had a, he had a personal run in with, with a person he was, he, he was saying he was having some difficulty getting a document that he needed. And the, uh, the, the agent basically said, you know, that's that's your problem. I, I you know, your it's it's your life, not mine. I don't remember the exact words, but he, he was basically saying, you know, you're he wasn't really respecting him, uh, you know, having value as a human being. Yeah, it was it was pretty shocking to hear just how flatly and how how much disregard he had for Santiago as a person. Um you know, he says, Santiago says that he told me it's my problem, that I don't care how you got here, why you have come. To me, your life isn't important, nor what is happening to you. Um, and these are the folks who are in charge of uh, processing Santiago's asylum claim and who are responsible for housing him and detention and who are essentially responsible for his well-being. And when you hear this kind of thing, it's really disheartening, you know. So... Asylum seekers, you know, these are people who have in, they've faced incredible danger to get here. They finally do arrive. Rather than uh, celebrating their escape from authoritarianism, um, asylum seeking has become harder under the current administration. You actually wrote an entire uh, accompanying piece to your, to your main story just about what's happened in the last four years about uh, what, what the Trump administration has done basically uh, fulfilling promises of making it harder for people to get into the country, um, even if they have a really good reason to. Uh, talk about a few of those things that are that have been going on the last few years. Yeah, you know, um, this all these policies have been very publicly made uh, with the idea of making it uh, a deterrent for immigrants to come to this country. You know, if you hear the conditions about the icebox and you hear about the way Border Patrol are treating people, the goal is cruelty. The goal is to deter people from coming here. Um, so right away in the first week of the Trump administration, he signed an executive order that said, you know, people who are undocumented coming to this country, including asylum seekers, we're going to detain them. Um, they're going to be detained. And, um, and in the past... Um, especially for asylum seekers, as long as they didn't have a criminal record and they didn't pose a danger to the community, um, they'd be given court dates and then released in, back into the United States. Um, that is no longer the case. Uh, basically, everyone's being detained. They're putting into these facilities that are overcrowded, that aren't built to house these people. And really, uh, the sad part, 
is that a lot of these folks coming through our families and uh, unaccompanied children. Um, So, you know, basically between 2013 and 2018, there is between 300 and 400,000 migrants uh, apprehended at the border. And last year it's reached up to over 850,000. So all those folks are now being detained. Um, And so not only are they detaining um, asylum seekers, but then um, January 2019, uh, there's this Remain in Mexico policy um, about for once you pass a credible fear interview um, and the court process starts, you go back into Mexico and you're forced to go through the process living in Mexico, even though you're trying to get into the United States. And it's really unfortunate for a lot of folks because there's... Tijuana, like cities like Tijuana and Ciudad Juarez are just simply not safe for uh, folks who are from other nations who are very vulnerable. Um, and there's a lot of crime and against these folks. And there are a lot of criminal elements who just know they can get away with all sorts of crimes. So that's Remain in Mexico. Um, in On July 26, 2019, uh, the Trump administration um, rolled out this policy uh, that it's called uh, the asylum transit ban that basically means if you want to ask for asylum in the United States and you have traveled through other countries, you have to ask for asylum in other countries first, which is a problem because there's a lot of Central American countries that have no asylum process. So that is just a really backwards rule. Um, And they have even tried to narrow the reasons why um, you can ask for asylum. And back in June 2018, Um, The Trump administration tried to eliminate domestic abuse as a reason for seeking asylum, but um, that got blocked by courts later on that year. The courts, that's an interesting aspect of things. A lot of these policies, especially family separation uh, and remain in Mexico, the courts get involved. Lower courts put a halt on some of these policies or, or, or claim that they're illegal. Then they get up to the stolen Supreme Court, which... Trump has uh, been able to appoint two justices to, uh, one of one of which was Obama's pick to get in, which would have swung the balance in probably the majority of these cases. Um, they get upheld. What just happened this week um, on Wednesday, March 11th, is that the Supreme Court uh, weighed in on Remain in Mexico, um, said that it could uh, it could be continued though a lower court had found it to be illegal. Um, so this, this first uh, installment was, it was mainly about uh, Ramon and Santiago, their stories um, about getting here, um, basically as, a, as examples of how any asylum seeker can get into this country. Um, talk about the rest of the series that's coming up in the next couple weeks. So for the next one, it's going to be a closer look at the Western Mass Asylum Support Network and sort of shift focus as to like what is actually happening here in the Valley, um, what it looks like for a sponsor who is housing an asylum seeker, um, learning a little bit more about the group, and they help establish the relationships that can form the basis uh, for a sponsorship between asylum seekers and people who are living in the area here. Um, We speak to a landlord who is helping out a Central American family 
and um, we sort of get more of like, what does it look like once they got out of detention? They're living here, type of picture. Um, for the third part of the series, uh, we're going to look at trans asylum seekers in particular. Uh, there's a group um, very similar to the Western Mass Asylum Support Network um, that is dedicated to uh, transgender asylum seekers, and we're going to learn about their backstories, what happened in their home countries, why they had to flee, and and what their lives are like now that they're living in Western Massachusetts. Great. Well, thank you, Luis. Um, check it out online. It's uh, called Seeking Asylum in Western Mass, and uh, this first part is uh, fleeing danger and violence to arrive in the valley. It's online now. And definitely stay tuned for these next couple of, of um, installments. Thanks a lot, Luis. Thanks, Ed. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to visit us at valleyadvocate.com.